Hello and welcome to Great Ridge Station. I'm your host, Sam Helgerson, and I'm pretty much a fixture around these parts. Thanks for stopping in on your way through. Season 3, Episode 15. I love maps. Good old-fashioned paper maps. I know they've largely been replaced by other technologies, but there's still something comforting to me about a map. See, when I was a kid, we had this world atlas that had every continent represented with the cities marked. It was kind of cool because you could tell the size of a city by the dot that it was marked with. A small circle meant a town under 10,000 people. The same size as a dot meant a town of 50,000 people. A dot with a circle around it meant a town of 100,000 people, and a larger dot meant 500,000 people. You know, a star indicated regional or state capitals, and a star with a circle around it was a national capital. I'd stare at the map and try to imagine how life might be. Who were the people, and how did they live? I'd look for remote places and try to figure out what it might be like for me to live there. National Geographic was helpful in this effort, and I spent hours doing that. As you can imagine, this COVID-19 lockdown has not been too tough for me. Probably more detail than you wanted, but wait, there's more. This atlas we had also showed major roads. I remember figuring out how far a person could drive before they hit the end of the road. I tried to find the route through South America and down to Cape Horn at the bottom of Chile, but no such luck. I settled on traveling north into Canada. The road ended at a place called Red Lake, Ontario, Canada. The road just stopped there. My brain was flooded with questions. Why was this town important enough to get a road and why didn't it go any further? Who lived there? What did they do for a living? As an adult and almost by accident, I got a chance to visit that town. It's a beautiful place, a whole lot of seaplanes. Many people who arrive there hire a seaplane to take them further north to even more remote places for fishing furloughs. Red Lake, Ontario described itself as a drinking town with a fishing problem. You see, with the magic of maps, National Geographic, and my colorful imagination, there's a natural tendency to think of life as a journey. And I've heard people say, life is not about the destination, it's about the journey. And every time I hear it, I want to say, gorilla frisbees it is. This is a framework that I've been working on for the past few years, and I thought, I'll roll it out here. So I'm working to flesh out some of these ideas, so your feedback is really much appreciated. See, everyone seems to have a different pattern of life, and I don't think it's fair to tell everyone that their life is a journey. Yes, it might be, but to me, it's not about the destination seems a little bit aimless and self-destructive. Admittedly, that's probably my faith showing, so bear that in mind. But there are other models of life that I think we ought to consider. If one of these describes your life, you're likely to say something like, I wish I was a fill-in-the-blank. It's pretty sad that we're all discontent with our lot in life, and rather than living this life to the fullest, we look for other ways of being. You know, I have to read this poem from Mary Oliver, and the last couple of lines are really appropriate to our discussion here. The poem is called The Summer Day, and it's available through the Library of Congress website. Here it is in its completeness, in its, in its full, in it, here it is. 
Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, who is eating sugar out of my hand, who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? End quote. And there you go. So let me give you a few more ways to think about your own wild and precious life, to learn to live fully into what God intended you to be. Now I'm going to walk through these one at a time, and then I'll list them at the end with a few closing comments. Maybe for you, life is being a baker. Now people who bake love it. The magic that happens when you combine a few basic ingredients to create what civilizations have called the staff of life. Life as a baker is beautiful and repetitive. Very both. See, when you're a baker, you must work every day. And your work doesn't keep. My best work today becomes day old tomorrow. It passes quickly from relevant to irrelevant. And only the new stuff counts. See, the bakers in life are, of course, literally bakers. But anyone whose work loses value quickly. News of all sorts, radio, TV, daily papers, cleaning people, dusting, vacuuming, laundry, lawn care, cooking of any sort. The sorts of things that moms and dads do just to keep the household running. These are the necessities of the day-in, day-out life that are relished only by those who capture the deeper meaning in their work. To others, it becomes repetitive drudgery. But wait, there's more. You may be a farmer. Farmer roles are also repetitive, but with a longer time frame. With bakers, once they understand the science and technique of their work, they can complete it easily because of the consistency and predictability of it. For farmers, though, there are other factors involved. Once the seed is planted, it takes time to see the harvest. The farmer waits. It might rain. It might rain too much. It might be too dry. Not too long ago, I drove down a country road with cornfields on each side. The field on the left had been completely flattened by a hailstorm that came through, and the field on the right was untouched. They were separated by a 20-foot-wide gravel road. Farming is successful based on a lot of things that the farmer can't control. The weather, the reliability of machinery, crop prices. Now... Obviously, there's more to farming than that, but the point is that the farmer is not in control of the whole process. See, I've always thought of my teaching as farming. I'm surprised sometimes how quickly students in the MA Strategic Leadership Program go from new enrollees to alumni. Graduation seems to come so quickly. And like farmers, our graduates face things that I, as an instructor, cannot control for them.
See, the farmer model fits anyone with a long cycle of repetitive work and a lot of unpredictable variables. Next up, you may be a soldier. Now this is less military than it sounds. It involves fighting battles for enduring values, things like truth, goodness, and beauty, ideas that are at the core of cardinal virtues like justice. In this model, Martin Luther King Jr., Winston Churchill, Florence Nightingale, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington were all soldiers, some literally, some figuratively, but all were willing to lay down their life for a cause larger than themselves. Sometimes the cause is the very thing that ends their life, in the case of King and Lincoln. Sometimes, though, the cause is accomplished, the goal reached, and a kind of listlessness sets in. Gary Wills noted this about Robert Oppenheimer. He was a brilliant leader in the development of the atomic bomb with the purpose of bringing World War II to a quick end. After that, however, he never led successfully in any other role. Soldiers, in short, always need a mission to remain vital and relevant. Without that, they tend to lack the moorings and vision or even a sense of purpose to their lives. That's the risk. If you're wired up as a soldier, consider the mission after the mission and give yourself a focus to look forward to beyond the immediate goal. Another model of life is life as the navigator. This involves helping others to find their way through difficult situations. Navigator really is the right word for this. They naturally sort out uncertainty and they do all they can to make the way clear for others. Back in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary was the first person to reach the summit of Mount Everest. To give some idea of how daunting that was, note that it was less than 20 years before we sent astronauts to the moon. So when I was a kid, I read about Hillary in elementary school, and the author mentioned his Sherpa guide. And my thought even then was, why didn't the guide get some credit too? Well, eventually, he did. His name was Tenzing Norgay. He was Edmund Hillary's Sherpa guide and his navigator for the ascent of the highest mountain on Earth. And finally, he's being recognized along with Hillary for the first successful summit of Mount Everest. See, that's a good example of what it means to serve as a navigator. You may not get the credit, at least not right away, but it's an indispensable role. See, my wife works in healthcare, and in her world, nurse navigators help patients find their way through the process of dealing with a difficult diagnosis. I have a friend who works in patent law, helping researchers file the necessary paperwork to protect their intellectual property. See, a complex world needs navigators. These are people who are skilled at dealing with uncertainties, clear about the road ahead. See, that doesn't mean they're always successful. It means they are committed to serving by helping people through complexity and complexity that might not be their own. Moving on, maybe for you, life means being a monk. I mean this in a somewhat more secular sense than you might be thinking. Thomas Cahill's book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, documents how monks saved thousands of ancient historic documents and in the process saved the archives for historic development. See, as a monk, in this case, I'm referring to the writers, the researchers, the prayers, and in this age, the filmmakers, the documentarians, and may I say, the podcast showrunners, those who cloister themselves away for the greater good. 
See, if this fits you, you know who you are. <laughs> if, if it does not, well, it seems to be a calling, and no one can manufacture that out of sheer willpower. Maybe your role in life is as a negotiator or a peacemaker. These are the people, sometimes the middle children, who are not happy unless everyone else is happy and treated fairly. I've seen peacemakers step into difficult situations and bring an immediate sense of calm. That calm allows them to do the difficult work of restoring broken relationships and having difficult conversations. See, peacemakers are not afraid of the battle and they know it will be difficult. They typically have an unfailing commitment to certain values, just like a soldier. But rather than fighting for a cause, they tend to advocate for the people impacted by that cause. Peacemakers do not roll over in the face of conflict. In fact, the presence of conflict makes their resolve even stronger. They negotiate commitments and they are relentless in holding people accountable to those agreements. See, these are not the Neville Chamberlains of the world. Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of Great Britain while Adolf Hitler rose to power. Chamberlain's approach was to avoid war at all costs and take a conciliatory approach to the growing threat in Europe. That didn't work. Peacemakers are more likely to take an aggressive stance and negotiate a meaningful agreement. Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes to mind. He was a peacemaker who gave his life for his unflinching stand against a powerful, malevolent opponent. He was one of the voices who spoke out, not as a soldier, but as a prophetic voice of truth. A peacemaker calls people up to a higher standard. The goal is to lift people up, settle on agreements that are beneficial, but without resorting to simplistic solutions. Now, for our purposes here, the last category is life as a butler. This is simply a person who serves others well. This is an unpopular role, particularly in leadership circles. No one wants to be the follower. No one really wants to serve. But for those whose life is made up of being a butler, they get great joy from helping others to thrive. You know, as I wrote that, the first person I thought of was Bev, a woman who served for years as the main cook at a church camp in Minnesota. All of her summer weeks were work weeks. She fed thousands, and she never took center stage. It's a beautiful thing when someone serves in a supporting role year after year, despite the inconveniences. See, for a butler's life, we do things that benefit others, and we do it to their specifications. The technical skill they have becomes their medium to serve others. I would argue that it could be metalwork, plumbing, electrical, sewing, gardening, cooking, cutting hair, cleaning homes, cutting trees, really, whatever you do, for pay or for passion, that serves the needs of specific others. Not people in general, but specific persons who ask for your help. Now, I would make the argument that we're all butlers from time to time, and it's a rare person who does that consistently. We've all known them, but we don't always recognize them because they are humble to the core. So, as you think about your own life and how it might not be a journey, ask yourself this. How do you serve? 
Your calling is going to flow out of your personality, your preferences, and your experiences. And your ability to serve others well will require certain skills. But you're likely to find that most of your life falls into one or two of these categories. It's good for you to remember that your work matters to God, whether you are a baker, farmer, soldier, navigator, monk, negotiator, peacemaker, or butler. Those are the means you have for serving others and making the world a better place, with all the usual caveats and fine print that goes along with that statement. And so, with this, I wrap up Season 3 of Great Ridge Station. As usual, I'll be taking a summer hiatus away from the microphone for a few weeks. I'm likely to have a couple of off-season episodes to get your required SAM fix, but in the meantime, I'll be mapping out seasons 4 and 5, and I expect that we'll return sometime between late August and mid-September. By the way, this break is a fine opportunity for you to catch up on previous episodes, tell your friends and colleagues to subscribe and listen, and if you have questions, let us know. We'd be happy to take them on. So, until the strains start running next fall, I wish you well. And as the old song says, God be with you till we meet again. Thanks for joining us at Great Ridge Station. All content is developed by Dr. Sam Helgerson with appropriate citations of outside sources. Our sound engineer is Brick Martin. All background and bumper media is in the public domain and retrieved from archive.org. The opening music is from Guy Lombardo, Down by the River. The closing music is from Annunzio Montavani, Skyscraper Fantasy. I'm already looking forward to your next visit to Great Ridge Station. Bye-bye.